walking through nine lessons of how to study the Bible, which is really just basic hermeneutics. Um, We've looked at it from a, a general perspective. These are the rules of, the, of interpretation. Um, we talked about observations and different types of genres and making sure that you let the context be the king. We talked about tools that you were able to use. And now we've transitioned from those general principles to looking at some specific ones. How do you apply those principles to, to different parts of the, of the Bible? And so tonight, we're, we're on the book of Proverbs, how to study Proverbs. Um, everyone have one of those? Great. As I said, next week we're going to be looking at how you interpret the, the Old Testament and the New Testament t- together. But tonight, how to study Proverbs. Now, if you remember, which you probably don't since it's been a long time ago, uh, the, the book of Ecclesiastes. How many of you remember that exposition, the book of Ecclesiastes? So one of the things that, that was so helpful, I think, about uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and when I was studying that, just seeing how Ecclesiastes fits in the Bible with the other uh, parts of wisdom literature. Uh, that was just personally helpful for, for me. We, we, we called them the four horsemen of wisdom, or the four stools, four legs of the, the stool of wisdom. There are four primary uh, wisdom books in the, in the Bible. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, obviously. Can anybody name the other two? Job, that's exactly right, and there's one more. One that you might not think is a wisdom book, but but it is. Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. And so you have Proverbs, which which, uh, is wise living for all of life. This is, if you do these things generally, this is how it will go for you. So Proverbs is helpful. So so think of that as this is your go-to book for general wisdom, biblical wisdom for for living. And then Job comes along, and you you go to the book of Job, for wisdom whenever circumstances don't fit in a nice, neat little proverb. And we live in a fallen world, so so we need wisdom for what happens whenever things don't go according to, to the book of Proverbs. And then Ecclesiastes comes along and gives us particular wisdom for living in a fallen world. How are we to think now that we live outside of the garden? So Ecclesiastes is a commentary on Genesis 3. Um, What is it like? What will it feel like living in a cursed world? Why why does it feel like I take two steps forward and three steps back? Why why is life frustrating? Why can I not find satisfaction in certain things? And Ecclesiastes really gives us the the proper lens to to look at life. In fact, after preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, I think it is a vital book for for anyone, um, even basic Christian living. 
if you don't understand what Ecclesiastes is saying to you, you're going to get really, really frustrated. But if you do understand what Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes tells you ahead of time, it actually um, uh, inoculates you. Uh, maybe that's a bad analogy because everybody's hating vaccines right now. It, it protects you from, from thinking badly about, uh, about the world. So you have the last one, which is Song of Solomon, and that's wisdom uh, for being married to another sinner, a fellow sinner. So how to, how to do that well. And when you put all of those together, those are the primary wisdom books in, in the Bible. I know there are other parts of the Bible that give us wisdom. Tonight we're looking at Proverbs, general wisdom for, uh, for living. So Proverbs, it says, at the top of page 2 here, are very practical tidbits of of wisdom from God to help us live wisely for the glory of God. Now, you'll probably be encouraged to to know that Proverbs is one of the easiest books to interpret. In fact, a lot of the interpretation is done for you. It's presented right up front. That's the whole point, right? It's a a general statement that you should be able to apply directly to to life. So, So that's encouraging. But there's still some things that we need to know about Proverbs or we can misuse Proverbs. So in God's wisdom, in the book of Proverbs, if it's heeded, it will spare us from a life of sin and and misery. And so you follow the proverbial principles about about money, uh, about relationships, uh, about avoiding... Uh, the you know uh, certain people and certain ways of of living, you do that. It will generally spare you from from a lot of sin and misery. It won't keep you from all of it. That's where Ecclesiastes comes in because Ecclesiastes says you can do everything right and you live in a crooked world and you cannot make certain things that are crooked straight. Only God will straighten those things out in uh, at the very end. But still, Proverbs is very helpful to us because if you apply it, it will will spare you from from a lot of sin and and misery. And yet, people don't always understand how to study Proverbs. Most know that the book of Proverbs teaches us wisdom, but don't know how to go about studying Proverbs in an organized and systematic way. So in this study, we're going to take some time to consider some of the characteristics of the book of Proverbs and and how to study this unique portion of God's book. My grandfather, my dad's dad, um, didn't come to Christ until he was in his 60s. Lived a very rough life. Grew up in Logan County, West Virginia. You know anything about Logan County, that is one of the roughest places in West Virginia to be from. Um, he, what's that? Enough said. Enough said yes, he uh, he he grew up in uh, in obviously a very different era. Um, we are related. Our claim to fame is we're related to the Hatfields of the Hatfields and McCoys. My my grandfather. I'm going somewhere with this story. He uh, he was one of eighteen brothers and sisters. He had. There were 18 children in that family, and, um, and my great-grandfather, same mother, same father, my great-grandfather was 
over six foot four, and my great-grandmother barely broke five feet, and they had 18 children. And um, he did not come to Christ until he was 60 years old, and he came to Christ under uh, a beech tree on the side of a mountain in West Virginia squirrel hunting. I still have the 16-gauge pump shotgun that he had. It's in my safe at home. And my grandmother packed his lunch, and it was literally in a pail. And, you know, you've probably seen the little pails, and then you, you take the lid off, and there would be a napkin on top of it. And he took the napkin out, and under the napkin was a note from her that said something to the effect of, I mean, she was a, a believer and prayed for him quite a bit and just said, I just can't imagine going to heaven without you. Um, that would break my heart, and I just was just plead with you to, to trust the Lord. And he bowed his head under that tree and, and trusted Christ. And so he got a late start, that's my point to this story, in, uh, in life. And Proverbs, when he came to the Lord, Proverbs became his favorite book. Um, and so because of that, I can remember when I came to Christ, I ha- still have the Bible my grandmother, that grandmother gave me, and I began reading Proverbs. Uh, let's look at what it says here about Proverbs. There are some characteristics that, that you need to know about. When you begin to read Proverbs, whether you're my grandfather at age 60 or if you are 6 or 16, there's some things that you need to remember about Proverbs. Remember that Proverbs are wisdom statements. They're truths or truisms. They're not magical formulas that produce absolute predictable outcomes. They're easy to remember statements that remind us how to apply God's wisdom to our lives. Remember, they're highly applicational. They're, they're, they're ready-made injections. They're, 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 you can put them into practice. And they, they show us the way that we should live and... They often give us normal but not guaranteed outcomes of of applying God's wisdom to to our lives. Here's a couple examples of that. Proverbs 22.6. You probably know this one well. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So as a general statement, a general truth, a truism, if you train a child in a specific way, the proper way, the way that he should go to follow God, even when he's old, generally he'll, he'll, he'll come back to that or he'll follow that. But that's not a guarantee if you raise your child in church and in Sunday school and have them there every time the doors are open that, that they are going to automatically follow Jesus. In fact, even as we heard this morning, the gospel is the power of God into salvation, not our parenting. But good parenting is very helpful, and it's our responsibility to be good parents and apply God's wisdom and teach them the gospel. But we don't have any control whatsoever over whether they'll, whether they'll repent and believe. That's, that's God's business. So it's a general truth. It would be very, very unwise to, to violate this proverb. It would be very unwise to do the free-range parenting idea. Well, it just doesn't matter whatever you want to do, uh, even as a Christian. I mean, God's going to save him if he's going to save him. That's very unwise. That's not what you're supposed to do. You have been given a command in Timothy, uh, or I mean uh, by Paul, uh, that says you're to, you're to instruct your children in the admonition of the Lord. And 
And here, Proverbs in generally in general says the way that you train them, then that's going to have an impact on them whenever they're, they're old. Look at Proverbs 23, 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Generally speaking, that's true. But you've probably also been in a situation, probably give us some examples if you think hard enough, where a fool, an ungodly person, an unsaved person, you, you said something about Christ, and, and maybe they came to the Lord, or maybe it was very helpful to them. So again, this is a general principle. Um, and so here's the warning. Just because Proverbs are general axioms of truth and, or truisms, it does not mean that we can ignore their teaching. It's always best to take the advice of Proverbs, but remember they're not hard, fast formulas for instant success. They're words of wisdom, which should always be applied and which will usually bring success. So, two warnings there. Warning number one, don't think Proverbs is a magical formula or it's a command. Proverb is a, is a general wisdom principle that if you put into practice, generally it will bring success. On the flip side, just because it's not a command doesn't mean you should disregard Proverbs. It means you should do Proverbs. It just says, don't be disappointed if exactly what it says doesn't happen in your life because you live in a fallen world. So, they're wisdom statements. Look at B here. Remember to watch for parallelism. So Proverbs is, is wisdom literature, and it's written in a specific, a specific way. Um, there are three major kinds or types of, of parallelism. Now, what, what do you think of whenever you think of something parallel, like, like railroad tracks, two things that are laid beside e- each other, one right after the other or one beside the other? Well, there are three types of of railroad tracks or parallelisms in, in Proverbs, and I'm going to show you each one of them. They're, they're a synonymous parallel, meaning that the things are, are saying something similar. There's an antithetical parallel, meaning they're, they're a contrast, and then there's a synthetic or a building uh, parallelism. You know, the first statement it lays the groundwork, and then the second statement in Proverbs enhances that or builds on, on that. So it's important to know this as you're reading Proverbs because you're, you're going to have Proverbs, like say one verse, it's going to make typically, it's going to have two lines, typically. It's going to make a statement in the first, and then it's going to make a statement in the second. And, and you have to, to, to see, is this uh, restating the same thing? Is this contrasting two things, or is this building on, on one another? Now, this will make sense as we start walking through this. Synonymous parallelism takes two types, identical or similar, and the key word to look for is and at the beginning of the second line. So identical parallelism states the same thing twice but uses different words. Look at Proverbs 14. 13. Here's an example of of a synonymous parallelism. Even in laughter, the the heart of 
the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. You see how he's saying the same thing there? Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain. And, and the end of joy may be grief. You can have those two things mingled together in, in life. Look at Proverbs 16, 16. Another example. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. You see how it's stating the exact same thing? But it's just using uh, uh, different words. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold. Wisdom is better than gold. It's better to pursue wisdom than gold. And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. If you have to choose between understanding or silver, choose understanding. The first line and the second line are parallel. And they're saying the same thing. So here's some examples of similar parallelisms that state two things which are which are similar. They're not exactly the same, but they're similar. So they, they have some things in common. Look at Proverbs 16, 20, number one. He who gives attention to the word shall find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Now, now what's, what's parallel there? Between the first line and the second line. Show me in, in that passage what's parallel. What, what's the same or similar? What correlates? He who gives attention. What, what correlates with attention in the, in the second part of that? Trust. That's right. He who gives attention versus he who trusts. So giving attention and trusting. All right? Uh, he who gives attention to the word. What, what's, uh, what's the parallel in the second part? In the Lord, yeah. He who gives attention to the Word, he who trusts in the Lord. So, so the Word and the Lord is, is parallel. And then the last one, um, he shall find good, and that correlates with blessed, right? He who gives attention to the Word shall find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Same thing in Proverbs 17, 27. He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. That's a general proverbial statement. Someone who restrains his words is paralleled with he who has a cool spirit. So not flying off the handle. You're able to hold your tongue. You, you restrain. It's paralleled with, a, with somebody who has a, has a cool spirit. They're not a hothead. He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So that's an example of, of similar and same. Now, let's look at how this plays out when it's, when it's completely different. Antithetical parallelism provides a sharp contrast between two different things. 
Usually, something good is contrasted with something bad in the Proverbs. Do this, not this. This is good, this is not good. And the key word that you're looking for is not and, but but. Usually at the beginning of the second line. So, here's one that's pretty easy. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Remember, there's two parallels. So, railroad track number one. The lips of an adulteress drip with honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. Railroad track two. But, in the end... She is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol or the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. So, so here's the contrast. Dripping honey, smoother than oil, bitterness, sharp as a sword... So what she says, the enticements that are there sound really good, but God says, beware, because there's something bitter and sharp there, and it's going to end in death. So there's a contrast. Here's a shorter one, Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrust of a sword. So the idea of speaking rashly, just letting it fly, going to Give it to you. Going to let you have it. Thrust of the sword. Contrast. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. You see the contrast there? Who speaks rashly, just throws their sharp words around like knives. It's, it's the tongue of the wise brings healing. So there's harming and healing. You want to be the healing one with your words. You want to heal with your words. Build up with your words. Not tear down with your words. Alright? Here's the last one. Synthetic parallelism. This is accumulative or climactic. It usually means one line of the Proverbs builds repetitiously on the same truth. Each line builds upon the subject matter expanding the previous line a little further. So Proverbs 19.17. We're going to do an exercise in, in a minute. We're just learning some basic principles about Proverbs right now. Proverbs 19.17. He who is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Uh, there's, there's not a contrast there. It doesn't say he who uh, is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord, and he who uh, abuses... Uh, the poor is wicked. There's not a contrast there. And there's not a parallel where it's saying the same thing. One statement is laying the groundwork, and then the second one's building on it. He who is gracious to, to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his, his good deed. It's a general proverb. Take care of the poor. Be generous. Proverbs twenty-seven fifteen. The next one there. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. And he, he who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil in his right hand. And so these two things build on one another. 
So, so notice it, it gives something that's, that, that you would be familiar with, like, a, like an illustration, a constant dripping uh, on, on a day of steady rain. And immediately you're picturing, you know, in your mind something dripping off of a tin roof and it's aggravating and a contentious woman are, are alike. Because there's plenty of Proverbs that pick on men, but this one points out what it's like to live with a, with a contentious woman, somebody who's not happy, somebody who's grumbling all the time, complaining all the time. and It's not a pleasant person to be around, whether you're a man or a woman. And verse 16 builds on that. He who restrains her, or he who would restrain her, restrains the wind. You, you, you try to control a woman like that, you're going to, it's like grasping oil with your right hand. You're not going to be able to do that. You can't put externals on a heart issue. And so, it's a general proverb, a, a proverb, a general statement. So one builds on the other. So there's some general principles about how proverbs are put together. Look at C here. Remember to watch for groups of Proverbs that have a similar theme or address a, a similar truth. Like, for instance, Proverbs 7 has a unified theme. How to escape an adulterous woman. Open your Bibles to Proverbs 7. You can't put it all in, this, in your handout, but let's look at Proverbs 7. So all of Proverbs 7 has a similar theme. It says a bunch of wisdom statements about, about an adulterous woman. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep uh, my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your intimate friend. Do all that, that they may keep you from an adulterous woman, in verse 5, for the foreigner who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house, I looked through, the, through my lattice, and I saw among the, the naive and, the, and discerned among the, the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight of the evening, in the, the middle of the night in the darkness. Behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious, talking about her characteristics. And her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows, therefore... Come out to, I've come out to meet you, flattery and lies, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home, and he has gone on a long journey, and he's taken a bag of money with him, all guarantees that he's not coming back soon. At the full moon he will come home. We have plenty of time. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to, discipline, to the discipline of a fool. 
until the arrow pierces through his liver, and as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Now he's back to the exhortations. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims that she has cast down. Numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to the grave, death, descending into the chambers of death. It is all one theme. General Proverbs about about a, an adulterous woman. Great proverb to, to have your sons memorize or, or read. You know Proverbs 31. Um, it has a unified theme too. Turn the page. Uh, what it means to, to be an excellent wife. Um, so some Proverbs aren't parallels, as you probably read in that or listen to that. They, they all build. Look at D. Remember that to God, and this is very important, remember that to God, knowledge doesn't become wisdom unless it's applied knowledge. Wisdom is the art of living. Wisdom is being able to put the Bible into practice with skill. So Mark Hager will talk about the integrity gap between what we know versus what we do. There's a lot of stuff that we know, but then there are the things that we do. That's what we own. That's what we practice. And so we're always not living to the same level of our knowledge. Um, But our goal is to bring those two things together as close as possible. We want to apply, we want to do what we've, what we've heard. And wisdom is being skilled in that. It, it's it's, it's to, to have skill of knowing how to put God's Word into practice in specific instances. Because that's one of the things we struggle with, right? I know what it says, but I don't know how to do it. Or we're using that as an excuse. But a lot of times we really want to do what God tells us to do. We just might not know how to do it in a specific instance. And Proverbs is very helpful in that. Wisdom is the art of living, not not knowledge of knowing about right living. So you can memorize the Proverbs, know all about the Proverbs, and not put Proverbs into practice, and you'll not be wise, according to Scripture. There are many exhortations in Proverbs. To walk, to obey, to listen, to do, to do not, to heed. So the emphasis of a proverb is the application of wisdom. It's not just to tell you general principles about about life and how things are going to work out if you do it this way. The point of proverbs is to encourage you to apply it, to put it into practice. A couple examples, Proverbs 115, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. Proverbs 19 and 20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. General principles about about Proverbs. So so how do you study the book of Proverbs? Well, there's many ways that you can do it. When you're studying, you remember those principles. You can study individual Proverbs. Um, 
I've seen calendars that have a proverb, like a literal proverb on the day. Nothing wrong with that. A general wisdom principle. I want to learn it, and I'm going to try to put it into practice in, in my life for today. Um, another way is, uh, is reading proverbs on the day, like, like I do with the Psalms. Whatever today is, you, you read Psalm. Uh, is it 8? Is today the 8th? Huh? 7th? Psalm 7 this morning? And then Psalm 37, and then Psalm 67, and then Psalm 97, and then Psalm 127. So you just add 30 to that. And you'll read five Psalms, and you'll read through the entire Psalter in a month. You can also do Proverbs on a day. So today, you would have read Proverbs 7, which we actually read, so you don't have to read that now. Just get up tomorrow and read Proverbs 8, and then Proverbs 9, and then Proverbs 10, and you'll actually read through the Proverbs once a month. Read through the Psalms, worship the Lord, and prayers, and then read Proverbs for wisdom. So you can study it in many ways. You can study individual Proverbs, like Proverbs 17.20, or 17.12. A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows in a fool. into a fool. What does that mean? Let me study uh, about that a little bit. A rebuke. What's a rebuke? What does it mean it goes deeper into one who has understanding? Well, let me think. I mean, a rebuke, if it goes deeper into one who has understanding. A rebuke would be, would be some type of correction. So that correction takes hold. It, it actually penetrates into the heart and the mind. It's received uh, in one who has understanding. It goes deeper in, in, into a person who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Wow, let me think about that. You can beat a fool with a hundred blows and it not help him and not correct him. He doesn't pay any attention. Why? Because he's a fool. Externals don't change the, the, the internals. But an external rebuke, a rebuke from somebody else, if I'm a person of understanding, wow, that, that helps me, that corrects me. That's a way to meditate on that specific proverb. Now think about ways to put that into practice in your life. Proverb 20, Proverbs 29.1 A man who hardens his neck after much reproof, will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Mm. How would I study that one? A man who hardens his neck. What does it mean to harden your neck? To bow up, to be stiff, to be hard, of, uh, to, to correct. Uh, I have a, have a bit or a bridle in my mouth, and I, and I will not turn. I'm, I'm being called over in this direction. I'm not going to turn over in, in this direction uh, after much reproof, I'm being pulled. I'm, I'm being, the reins are coming back. I'm, I'm being reproved to, to try to do the right thing, do, the good, do, the, do what is most helpful. And if I resist that too much, I'll suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Um, God's patience can run out. I might not have another opportunity. So that's a general proverb that I want to remember. You can study individual proverbs. You can study series, connected Proverbs that, that have a unifying theme, like Proverbs 25, uh, Proverbs 25, verses 11 through 15. You can study Proverbs uh, 27, 13 through, through 16 about the sluggard. You can notice in, in that first example, Proverbs 25, it, it talks about um, 
word spoken, a wise reprover, a faithful messenger, a man who boasts, a soft tongue. It's all about, about speech. It's all about using your words or listening to words. Proverbs 27, connected Proverbs, the unifying theme is a sluggard. The sluggard says there's a lion in the road, a, a lion in the open square. It's too dangerous to go out, too dangerous to work. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. Slow, and he won't disconnect. My dad used to have a saying whenever we would sleep longer than he thought that we should sleep, which was usually very different from what a teenage boy thought was time to sleep. He'd come in your room and turn the light on. He'd say, do I need to cut that mattress off your back? Is it, is it, is it you glued to it? Get up. Go to work. Sluggard turns on its hinges. As the door does, sluggard turns on his bed. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. And he's too lazy, he's too weary to even bring it to his mouth again. He... Sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. They're fools as well. You can also study a collection of Proverbs. You can be topical with Proverbs. Proverbs are topical. It's a great, great place to, to preach a topical message. Um, these are all about discipline. Proverbs 12.1, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who, who hates reproof is stupid. It's pretty plain, isn't it? Proverbs 13.18, Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline. But he who regards reproof will be honored. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. You're listening to these and you're going, these are absolutely true. I I, I know this. It's the reason I've disciplined my my children. It's the reason my my mother disciplined me. And and you've seen it played out in life, in your life, or in, in the lives of others when... When somebody neglected discipline and refused it, they can't see far enough to know how bad that's going to turn out in their life. And so they just neglect it, and they, they, it says they despise themselves. They think that they're kicking back against mom and dad because mom and dad are so mean to discipline them, but in reality they're despising themselves because of what's going to come. Mom and dad's just being gracious and kind, loving to you. Proverbs 19.20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the the rest of your your days. Somebody who learns to to take counsel and accept correction, accept discipline as as somebody who who will live a long life, typically. And those days will be filled with, with wisdom. You can study verse by verse through Proverbs. Like I said, read the Proverbs on the day. Each proverb teaches a different truth. As you do, notice how the proverbs uh, have, uh, have different structures. These have an identical structure. So there's an obvious parallel truth stated in the, in the illustration with something more obscure. These might not be as easy to interpret, but I think you can very very well, Proverbs twenty-seven, eighteen. He who tends the fig tree will eat its fruit. 
and he who cares for his master will be honored. Kind of, kind of think about that one, don't you? What does tending trees and eating fruit have to do with caring for his master? Well, tending a fig tree. That's caring. It will eat its fruit. It will bear. It, it will have a good result. And the good result of somebody who cares for his master is a good employee or a good slave. They'll be honored. So there's fruit that comes from that. Proverbs 27, 19. As water face, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects man. I look in the water, I see a reflection of my face. You look in somebody's heart, it's a reflection of who they are, what they are. Um, Sheol and Abaddon is, are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. The grave just says more, more, more. We're never satisfied. Um, you can read those other two. Interpreting Proverbs. Number three. As I said, many Proverbs are clear in their meaning and application. It just jumps off the page at you. So it's the easiest to interpret. We know exactly what we're supposed to do and even the general benefit if we do it. Yet there are other instances that it might not be clear. So here's the exercise we're going to do tonight. So here's an example of a proverb that some have used as a proof text to say that borrowing is sin. I want you to notice how the principles of this lesson, as well as other principles that you've already learned, apply here. So here is the proverb, Proverbs 27, or 22.7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. So there's our proverb. Let's apply what we've learned to this proverb and, and see what we can learn from it. Proverbs uh, 22.7 seems to say to us that borrowing is wrong. And we can observe that there's an and here, so it's not a contrast. It has an and to the beginning of the second line. So you look at the contents, and you can see that it's synonymous. It's a synonymous parallelism. Both lines are saying something similar. It means the first line teaches something similar to the second line. So the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. It's a parallel. And by examining the second line, we learn in a similar way, since it's a parallelism, borrowers become slaves of, of, lend, of lenders. So the first line, you learn that rich people rule over poor people. That's a general truth. General truth. You look in the world. Rich people rule over poor people. It says nothing about uh, what you might automatically think, import into that, well, a rich person is a bad person, uh, or a poor person is a good person, or, or, or they're lazy. I mean, it says nothing about the rich person or the poor person uh, as far as their character or how they got rich or how they got poor. It just makes a general statement. Generally, rich people rule over poor people. And by examining that second line, then in a similar way, borrowers become slaves to, to lenders. And if you want to rearrange the second line so it matches the first line, 
you might say that lenders become masters over those who borrow from them and that the debtor must repay the, pay the debt. Notice also that there's some word pictures here, slave and master. So one who borrows doesn't literally become a slave. It's a general proverb. It's, descri- it's, a, it's descriptive. Neither does a lender become a literal master over the, over the borrower. The borrower is bound to repay the debt. In that way, only he is enslaved to the lender. The lender is similar, similarly like a master in that he has the right to expect repayment of the debt from the, the borrower. You do a little bit of word study on this, which, which, which we don't or won't. Go to Strong's or otherwise, you probably need to go to a good commentary to figure out some of these things. You'll, you'll, you'll figure out that, that the Hebrew is, is specific. It's somebody that, um, something that's occurred in the past, something that's still continuing and progressing from the past, which hasn't been completed or can describe a future condition. You say, well, what does all that mean? Well, read a little bit further. Hear the continuing progression of what is true. Hear the continuing progression of what is true, but is not completed is, is what's probably in mind. The word might be para, paraphrased in the first line as the rich have been and continue to be ruling over the poor. The borrower is an active participle which, is, which expresses continual action. So it might be paraphrased in the second line as the one who is continually in the process of borrowing. Remember, these are truisms, general statements of wisdom. Someone who is continually in the process of borrowing. The lender is a causative, active participle. It might be the one who is continually in the process of causing himself to lend. So if you would amplify or paraphrase all of that together, look at D. In the same way that, uh, that rich people have been in the past and will be in the future ruling over the poor, so the one who habitually borrows from the one who continually causes himself to lend will be in a state of obligation to re- repay his indebtedness. Here's some additional observations. Notice the lender is voluntarily and continually lending. And notice that the, in B, the borrower being spoken of here is one who has a continual pattern of borrowing. So both lines are similar, if they're similar, and they are. You need to ask yourselves, is it evil that the rich rule over the poor? Is that evil? And the answer is no. There's nothing wrong with rich people ruling over poor people, any more than it's wrong morally for poor people to rule over rich people. It's just a truism. So the proverb never the proverbs never says borrowing is evil or sinful or that it should be avoided. It if it was, you would all have, you would also have to say that it's morally wrong to be ruled over, since borrowing is parallel with being ruled over. The proverb is not saying that by borrowing you become a literal slave any more than having someone rule over you makes you poor. The borrower is like a slave. 
in the one respect. He is obligated to pay back his debt to the lender. He is not free to be delinquent, but is bound, figuratively speaking, like a slave, in that he must pay back the lender, who in this one aspect has the right to expect repayment, like a master who expects obedience from his slave. It's, it's saying that by borrowing, you become indebted to the lender, but only in the matter of having to pay back the debt. You must be his servant, quote-unquote, in the sense of working to pay off what you owe. It's saying that those who voluntarily lend money to others have the right to expect repayment according to the contract. Uh, So what are some timeless truths or wisdoms? How do you apply this proverb? A... Realize that the rich will usually rule over the poor because money can be a form of power. Be content with this, whether you are rich or whether you're poor, a ruler or one ruled over. Paul talks about slavery, the condition that you were called. B, realize that if you're the one who borrows from another, you will be obligated to pay your debt to the lender, and he has the right to expect you to do so. If you continually borrow, you will be under obligation, continual obligation, to repay. And that might not be a pleasant way to live. And realize that if you lend someone something, you have the right to expect repayment according to the, to the contract. How do you apply that proverb? The other place I would probably go if I'm applying a proverb, and even, even that doesn't make it completely clear. I mean, they kind of distilled it for us there and got into the Hebrew accusative and, or, and all the different participles and those kinds of things and gave us an amplified translation. But then you, you would use the rest of Scripture to, to help you understand. So you, you may go to Romans 13.8, um, which is a usually a definitive verse to prove that borrowing is, is wrong. Look at Romans 13.8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So that's usually a proof text saying, there it is, owe no one anything except love one another. But the verse is primarily concerned with relationships, not not money issues. Even the money part of it focuses on on not paying debts that that, that you owe. Look look back at um, verse... Verse 7, the verse before. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear uh, is due, honor to whom honor is is due. Don't fail to pay what what you owe. Um, That you don't want to go without paying it. Don't owe it, meaning, meaning pay it. You can also go into the Old Testament because debt was part of a normal life and business of in, in the Old Testament. You go to Deuteronomy 15.1. It gives instructions about borrowing and 
charging interest that was part of the economy. The law regulated uh, borrowing. It regulates it from abuse. It doesn't say it's wrong. But it is wrong to abuse people, to be like a loan shark and charge too much interest. You have a fair interest rate. It's expected. Um, Deuteronomy 15.1 talks about how debts were for fellow Israelites were forgiven after seven years. They weren't forgiven uh, for non-Israelites. In fact, Jesus himself, the Sermon on the Mount, if we're not to, uh, to loan money to those who are in need, then uh, surely we, we need to uh, pay attention to Matthew 5.42. Look at Matthew 5.42, if you would. A little warm in here, isn't it? Almost done. Matthew five forty two. Jesus himself here says we're not to refuse to loan money to those who are in need. Well, if Jesus says that, then surely we can't say borrowing is sin if the Lord mentions it. Matthew 5, 42. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away him away who wants to borrow from you. It's an echo of Deuteronomy 15, uh, 7 through 8. If, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites and in any towns in the, in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever is needed. And not only that, you, you have the, the parable of the talents where Jesus assumes the borrowing and lending with interest even rebukes a wicked servant for not putting his talents in the bank and earning interest. You turn over to Matthew 25, verses 26 and 27. Matthew But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. If you knew that, then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. How do banks make money and pay interest to investors? They loan money. What was prohibited in Scripture is abusing the poor or interest levels that were, were extortion. So the law prohibited charging interest in, made to the poor. Exodus twenty two twenty five. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. So that's somebody who can't afford it. Leviticus twenty five thirty six. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but, but fear your God so that you may continue to, to live among you. Um, 
interest in general was to be reasonable. Proverbs 28, 8, He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. So regulation on debt and interest was to protect, was, was, to, was to bless and protect both the lender and the poor. The law regulated the, you know, the heart. The law was designed to help the poor by not making their situation worse and and it was, was to teach a spiritual lesson. So borrowing and lending is regulated, but it's not, but it's not sinful. But it may not be wise, <laughs> which is why you need to follow what Proverbs says. Because if you borrow, then you have to pay back whatever you borrow. And to the extent that you borrow, you, you are a, you're working for that person to, to pay that back. You can't just say, oh, well, I don't want to do that. So think about that whenever, whenever you, you, you go do it. Just an example of how to put that into practice. Now look at the homework there. Some of you do this, some of you don't, which is, is fine, I understand. Um, but the question is, take Proverbs 6.28 and, um, and apply these principles and, and, and do it for... These two other Proverbs here, Proverbs 15, 8 and Proverbs 30, 15 through 16. And if you have any questions, be happy to answer those after I say amen. Because I know with the time change, you're probably getting tired. So let me pray. Turn you loose. Next week, Old and New Testament. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the principles to, to be able to apply it. Help us to learn skill in putting your word into practice. Let's not just know things, but, but do them. And uh, Proverbs is a great book to help us do that. We love you. Uh, we want to obey you. So I pray that you'll dismiss us with your blessing even tonight. And through this week, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.